Our scripture today comes from 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, through chapter 4, verse 6. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask, because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him, and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the Spirit he gave us. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is come from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Jesus, show us your way and your life. Amen. Confession. That's the name of this last spiritual pathway that we're exploring the last of seven spiritual pathways that are all a part of a journey that we've called followers, as in being followers of Jesus. And maybe I'll begin this morning by just asking you, are you? Are you a follower of Jesus? And there may be some people who will say, well, I'm a Christian. And that's good. I mean, there are people who are Christians and Muslims and Buddhists, Jewish people. But when Jesus came in the flesh, the real flesh and blood Jesus, and that's something John wants to emphasize, that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. When the flesh and blood Jesus walked up to someone, he didn't say, you know, I'm thinking of starting a new religion. Do you want to come on board? No, he said, follow me. And even those who knew very little about him sensed that there was something so important about him that he was worth rearranging their whole lives around Jesus. And that was true not only of the physical flesh and blood Jesus, 
But even when he ascended to be with his father and, and his representatives talked about that flesh and blood Jesus and talked about his being present among them and within them through his spirit, again, people rearranged their lives around that reality, around that person, Jesus Christ. Oswald Chambers has written a devotional book, My Utmost for His Highest. And the more, the more high, the higher I regard Jesus, the more importance I give to Jesus, the more of myself I'm likely to give to him. He also uh, said, the good is the enemy of the best. And so when it comes to Jesus, um, we never think in terms of good enough. Good enough is, is the enemy of, of what Jesus deserves and warrants and the life that he offers us. But let's get back to that word confession. Um, it's actually a really interesting word biblically. Often when we think of confession, we think of confessing our sins. And John actually uses the word in that way back in his first chapter. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Greek word is homologeo, and it's the same word that's used in our scripture today. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses homologeo, this translation has acknowledges, which is a little weak. It should really be confesses. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And actually the word confess can have a variety of meanings. meanings. Homologeo can mean to promise, declare, profess, confess, even praise. And all those meanings really come together um, when we talk about becoming a confessing member at Bellevue Reformed Church. In our tradition and denomination, there are two kinds of members. There are baptized members, which usually refers to children when they're baptized into the community of, of faith. And, and it's with the hope that eventually they'll become confessing members. There'll come a time in their lives when they will say, yeah, I need what Jesus did for me on the cross. I'm a sinner. When they'll say, I, and I believe that he is the Son of God, God the Son, who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. In other words, I believe he's Lord. And I promise to make him my Lord. I give him my allegiance. I promise to make him the center of my life and existence, to re rearrange my life and my future around him. And finally, praise. I commit to gathering with God's people every week to praise him, to worship him, and to continue that spirit of praise and worship throughout my week. That's all a part of what it means to become a confessing member. And it's really a big deal. It's a beautiful thing. And by the way, if you're not a confessing member, I encourage you to consider that, to bring this before the Lord. I think a lot of us think, well, you know, my, my religion is private. My relationship with Christ is private. But actually this word homologeo, really means to say, to speak, in agreement with others. It really suggests something outward and physical. And even when we talk about confessing our sins, I've begun to wonder if, if that also is meant, at least in some instances, to be something we do outwardly. 
because virtually every other time the word homologeo is used in the New Testament, it's something public, it's something verbal, it's something we do outwardly. It's a part of how we follow Jesus who became flesh. We take this internal reality and we live it out outwardly by our behaviors, but we also live it out outwardly by what we do with our physical mouths, the words that come out of those mouths that are heard by the physical ears of others. As Paul says, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that Christ raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. And that's because salvation is for the whole of our being. And so there's something really powerful when we join our inner reality with what we say out loud. And that's all a part of what confession is about. And that's why even with sin, James says, you know, if, if you're really, really sick, call the elders, have them pray for you and anoint you. And if there's sin involved, confess your sins to one another so that you can be saved. Well, John uh, inhabits a world that, um, that is spiritual. And not spiritual in the sense of every human being has a spiritual part to them, but spiritual in the sense that there are spirits intersecting with our material reality. But those spirits have to be discerned. There can be demons, there can be angels, um, there can be the Holy Spirit, there can be the spirits of our age. And so he says you need to test the spirits. He said, dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And basically, any spirit that compromises the centrality of Jesus Christ, objectively, but also in our own lives, is a spirit that we need to be wary of. There may be wisdom there. There, it, you know, there, there may be even something to be learned, as long as we bring it back into our relationship with the real Christ, the living Christ that came in the flesh, that's described to us in this physical Bible. And it's not that this, uh, to discern means to try to figure out where did this thought come from. It could have come from my own mind. It could have come from my enculturation. That's not what testing the spirits means. It means testing the message, the word. Is this of God? And will this deepen my relationship with Jesus Christ as Lord and enable me to bear witness to him as Lord? <coughs> Excuse me. And so, uh, you know, sometimes the spirits can affect a whole culture or a particular aspect of a culture. I think racism is one of those spirits. And, you know, I think of someone like Philip Yancey, who grew up in the South, and uh, he's, he's an excellent author. He's written a lot of great books, but he talks in his books quite frequently about just adopting the racist attitudes of of the church people he worshipped with and of the pastors he, he listened to. It wasn't something he decided, oh, I think I'd like to be a racist. No one is born a racist. It's something he absorbed from those around him. We talk about institutional racism, but there's also theological racism. And really, a part of what's going on here in this particular passage is that there's a philosophy that's just, just coming into existence about this time in, in the Greco-Roman world. 
that Christians are being tempted to adopt, to, to sort of merge with Jesus. Just as racism was merged with Jesus in this country, um, and, and was in South Africa, for example, under apartheid. And so we don't decide to be racist. But at some point, we, you know, because of the scriptures and because of the Spirit of God, we need to discern, is this of God? Is this, how, this is what God wants me to believe about black people or brown people or people of color? And so for John, it was Gnosticism. Certainly racism was an issue that the early church had to deal with, but there was this rising philosophy called Gnosticism that eventually became really a real threat to Orthodox Christianity in the subsequent centuries. And Gnosticism is this belief that matter is just evil and corrupt, and you just want to avoid this physical world. You want to escape it, and how you escape it is through wisdom. See, even wisdom can become an idol. Adam and Eve, I think it's the first idol they were tempted to worship. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What does the knowledge of good and evil mean but wisdom? In fact, we're told that when Eve saw that the fruit of that tree was beautiful and good for food and good for wisdom, she ate it and then gave it to Adam. I've known in my own life how the pursuit of wisdom can push Jesus to the side. I had several years when that was the case. And so here were these Gnostics, and they believed that uh, the key to salvation was wisdom, and that salvation meant escaping this physical world. Eventually, when they died and their souls went up to heaven, and even now to escape, you know, just, to, just to try to avoid physical material reality as much as possible. And again, that happened through wisdom, often through a secret kind of wisdom or knowledge. And there were Christians who thought, you know, there's something about that that sounds kind of Christian to me. You know, we're supposed to be careful about the world. There's a lot that's evil and corrupt in the world. I mean, look around you. There's a lot about the physical world that's, that's, that's corruptible. It's become corrupted. And so when John talks about believing that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, he probably has that, that nascent Gnosticism in mind. It's just beginning to affect Christians in their thinking. But we're all living under the influence. We're all driving under the influence. Everything we do is under the influence. And so we want to test the spirits. We want to say, is this, is this of God? And by the way, if it's not something that deepens our relationship with Christ, helps him become more central in our lives, it really is antichrist. It's an antichrist to us. I said, the good is the enemy of the best. And so something that's good can actually be an antichrist to us if, if it in any way pulls us away from Jesus as the central person and presence and focus of our lives. So how are we to discern the spirits? And John says, this is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges, confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And most people believe in Jesus. But then there's believing in Jesus Christ. I think a lot of people just assume that that's his last name, that that's the, the name that distinguishes him from all the other Jesuses and Joshuas in, in the biblical story. And actually the Greek word Jesus is the translation of the 
Hebrew word Yeshua or Joshua. We've got several Joshuas in the Old Testament. One is more famous, the one that was uh, the protege of, of, of Moses and led the people into the promised land. But there are a lot of Joshuas and Jesuses in Jesus' day. One of, one of the most common names, actually. But, but it's not a name that's meant to distinguish him in terms of being a last name. Um, it's his title. It's his place in the story. And what it tells us right away is that the Old Testament that some people devalue, and in fact, there were Gnostic Christians that said, you know, um, the, the God that created this world, that's the God of the Old Testament, and, and we know that's, that's an evil God. That, you know, and, and actually, the Gnostics believe that, that this world was made by, not by God, but by this distant emanation of God called a demurge. And it was a corrupt God that made this corrupt world. And so when they read that God created the heavens and the earth, they just assumed that it was this corrupt God and just sort of threw out the Old Testament. By the way, they also threw out the acts and deeds of Jesus because that was matter. You have the Gospel of Thomas that has the words of Jesus, often corrupted by Gnostic philosophy, but nothing about the life of Jesus. And so Jesus is the Messiah. That's, that's a person in the story that's talked about in the Old Testament. Jesus said, I've come not to abolish the law. And I think what he meant here was the Old Testament. I've come to fulfill it. The Old Testament is a story without an ending. It's still looking forward to a particular ending, and that's the coming of the Messiah and of the future age. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that story. So as soon as we say that Jesus is the Christ, we're affirming a couple of things about God. That God is our creator. He loves creation. He celebrates creation. He so loved this world, not just human beings, this world that he gave his son for it. And he loves the story. It's his story. History is his story, ultimately. And the story matters, including all that's happened to this point. So, um, the fact that Jesus is the Christ matters. My, uh, my granddaughter, Tracy, um, emailed my, my wife, Sharon, this week. And uh, we found out that she lived, lives right around the corner from where there was that young black man who was, uh, was killed by a police officer at that drive-in or drive-through restaurant, just around the corner. In fact, she was, had a very difficult time coming home that evening because of all the police cars and all the traffic, emergency vehicles, and all the fires that were going on. And in the midst of that, social media in the area was popping up with the words that police officers weren't showing up and, and uh, were calling in sick. And in this email, there was just this frantic, anguish cry. This is crazy. I feel so overwhelmed for me and for my boys. I wish I could just get out of here. And then she said at the end, this is history. I'm living in the midst of history. And Jesus can identify with that. He entered into the midst of history. He didn't just hover above it. He became flesh. And it's really obvious that history as we know it wouldn't be the history we know apart from Jesus. 
you wouldn't be listening. You wouldn't be wasting your time listening to me right now. You wouldn't be thinking, you know, I love Rich Gaines, he's just such a great speaker. I don't care what he talks about. I just love listening to him. I don't believe that for a moment. You wouldn't be listening to me unless Jesus happened, unless Jesus had entered into the story, unless you believe that he's still important to the story and that there's a story ahead that's because of Jesus. He's coming back. He's coming back into the story. And even now, he's, the whole story is under his authority. So history matters. And matter matters. The world matters. And yes, he became flesh. Now, for a Jew, that would have meant that you believe that, that the Messiah had actually come. I mean, they assumed that the Messiah was going to be a flesh and blood human being. And so when John is saying, well, he, he came, he came in the flesh, that's saying he's already come. And that was really difficult for a lot of Jews because they believed that there were certain things that were signs of, of a Messiah actually coming, physical signs like God gathering together his physical people, the Jews, restoring them as a people. His restoring the temple, the physical temple, as the place where God dwells. His restoring the, the land of Palestine as coming under the sovereignty of God's people. And you know, some people, I think, have this assumption that their vision for the Messiah was just too big. You know? And that actually Jesus came to bring a spiritual kingdom not a physical kingdom. And actually, that's, that's our being influenced by Gnosticism. That's right. This whole business of, of the kingdom of God being a spiritual kingdom, that's Gnosticism. When, when Jesus said, you know, the kingdom of God is within you, that's not actually what he said. The Greek word, would, word should better be translated, the kingdom of God is among you. He was talking to Pharisees. He wasn't saying, oh, the kingdom of God is within you, within you as Pharisees. No, he's saying the kingdom of God is among you. Physically, it's here because I'm here. It's happening. This is history. This is the history of the kingdom of God unfolding. People are being healed. Um, people are being raised from the dead. The wind and the waves are being calmed. People are being fed. It's history. It's flesh and blood history. And actually, what was really happening was so much greater, physically. What Jesus was gathering wasn't just a physical people of Jews. He was, talk, he was gathering a physical people of Jews and people of all nations. And so the physical Jesus, after he was resurrected, said to his disciples, make disciples of all nations. I want all of them to be a part of my physical people. And as far as the, the temple is concerned, that temple in Jerusalem, that's just way too small for God. As Paul says, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. John writes, those who keep his commands live in him and he in them. We are the temple of God, the physical temple of, the, of God. And, and that temple is everywhere. It's not just located in one place. You can find this temple everywhere in virtually any city. And as far as the land is concerned, Palestine just isn't big enough. And so Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And so this is a great um, vision. Um, this is a big story that's unfolding, and Jesus Christ is the Christ who took on flesh, and he actually did come to fulfill that purpose 
that uh, destiny of Israel having a Messiah, a Savior King. It's also important for, it was also important for Gentiles to understand that Jesus had come in the flesh. He wasn't just a spiritual king. It's not just wisdom that matters. It's how we live in our actual physical lives. A lot of Gnostics believed that it didn't matter how we acted outwardly. That was just irrelevant. And so that influenced some of the Corinthians who said, well, it doesn't matter if I hang out with a prostitute. It's just, it's just the flesh. It's, it's the spirit that matters. That's, that's Gnosticism. It's also Gnosticism that says, you know, Jesus came to free our souls from our bodies so that our souls could be in heaven with him someday. That's Gnosticism. That's what I was taught as a child, but it's Gnosticism. The, the, the salvation of the Bible, and we know this because of the Old Testament, and Jesus confirms this through his ministry, the salvation of the Bible includes everything, even animals, lion, lions and lambs laying down together, children you know, being able to play at the, at, at the uh, hole or home of a snake. All of creation is being redeemed into new creation. So the fact that Jesus became flesh is a sign of that. He even rose from the dead with this flesh, flesh and blood body. It was a transformed body, still had scars, and it's that body that ascended to be with the Father and will be coming back again. Jesus Christ became flesh. And what it means is that God loves black people, not in spite of the fact that they're black, but because they're black. People say, well, you know, I don't see color. Well, the whole point of, of Jesus taking on flesh is that Jesus values all sorts of color. He wants us to see color, you know? What, what if someone showed us a beautiful um, mountain view and, and, it's, and, and we pointed out all the colors and, and, uh, and they say, well, you know, I don't see color. Now, some of us are colorblind. That's not, that's not an option for us. But it's the color that, brings, that, that enhances our sense of how beautiful it is. And, you know, God loves uh, women. Not in spite of the fact that they're women, but because they're women. There were many Jewish men in Jesus' day who would begin their day, they'd wake up, get out of bed, and say, God, I thank you that I was not born a woman. That's right. God loves women because they're women, not in spite of the fact that they're women. God loves gay people because they're gay, not in spite of the fact that they're gay. He loves transsexual people not because, not in spite of the fact that they're transsexual, but because they're transsexual. And you know, some people will argue about you know, whether these are forms of brokenness, whether these are gifts and part of God's design of people. But ultimately, you know, that doesn't matter because we're all broken and we're all gifted. In fact, if you look at the biblical story, usually where sin most often happens is at the point of our giftedness. Because when we have a gift or talent, we tend to depend upon God less. We tend to be full of ourselves. That's where we tend to commit most of our sins. It's at our point of brokenness that we realize how dependent we are upon God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
And actually our gifts often are surrounded and become, and become a, a source of brokenness in our lives. And it's our brokenness that ends up being a gift. God loves us as we are. With all of our giftedness and all of our brokenness, and we don't have a responsibility to sort that all out. For ourselves or for others. I think this also affects our thinking about really difficult and important social issues like abortion and immigration. And I think sometimes we're just asking the wrong questions because we fail to understand that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. And so when it comes to abortion, um, we, we argue about, okay, when, when, does that, when does that human being become a human person? When does, when does a fetus become a human person? And you know, I don't have the answer to that. And, I, and, I, and the Bible really doesn't tell us either. The Bible is really agnostic on that question. I think it's the wrong question. John doesn't say that, that Jesus Christ came and, and became a human being or a human person. He became flesh. And that's amazing. Flesh is amazing. A fetus is amazing. And of course, we would all agree that when that fetus was Jesus in, mother, in, in Mary's womb, that was amazing. Okay? That fetus was, was of supreme value. But the thing is, that same fetus in another woman's womb is the fetus of royalty. It's a royal fetus. We were made in the image of God. We've been talking about how that means that we are a royal priesthood. We're kings, queens, priests. That's a fetus. A king, a queen. And those people at the border, they're made in the image of God too. They're kings and queens and priests. And so we don't regard that fetus or those people at the border as aliens. And Jesus became flesh. He adopted this world has his as a part of him. It's still a part of him in heaven. Matter matters. That flesh, whether or not it's a person yet, matters. That's, a, that's the flesh of royalty. And those people at the border matter. And so we don't treat that fetus as an alien. And we don't treat those people at the border as an alien. They're not aliens to us. Um, that, that's Antichrist. That's right, that's Antichrist. That's not how Jesus sees them. And however that child comes to be to us, and however those people come to be, we talk about illegitimate children, we talk about people who come illegitimately, legally or illegally, the bottom line is that, that these are kings and queens. This flesh is royal flesh. And that's the starting point for followers of Jesus and how we think about these issues. How we address these issues in the public square, that requires nuance, complexity, and I don't have all the answers to that. But we have to start at the right place, at the theological right place, and it's based upon the fact that Jesus became flesh. Yeah, black lives matter. Because all matter matters. Not just people, but all matter matters. Some of you love pets. Pets matter to God. Animals love you know, are matter to God. 
um, animals were God's idea. All matter is God's idea. Which brings me to my last point. Do you realize how much you matter to God? Do you realize how much God loves you? And loves your matter, your physicality, the unique person and personality that you are. God loves you. Yeah, but, you know, I, 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 you know, there's some parts of me I don't like. I don't see how he could like them. Parts of me that are ugly, you know. I try to cover them up, hide them, and sometimes I can't. And, and, and there's so much a part of, of, of uh, my personality that, that I don't like. God has decided to put himself, to place himself in you, to inhabit you. He loves your matter, your body. He loves you. He's not a Gnostic. He doesn't just love your spirit. God's not a Gnostic. God is the God of Scripture. Jesus is the Messiah that that reveals to us a God who loves creation. That includes your body and all that makes up who you are. And yeah, it's a work in progress. And he loves working with all of that. He's a master worker. We're his disciples and we are his masterpiece, says Paul. He also loves your story. And for some of us, that's even more difficult. That God loves our story? I've done some things I, I can't even stand. It's, it's painful just to remember those things that have happened in my life. Things that have happened to me, but also the things that I've done. I'm ashamed of them. How can God love my story? Well, you see, God loves your story because those events are a part of a larger story. The other night, Sharon and I um, watched a movie. Um, and uh, let's see, find what. Oh, yeah, the, the Hate You Give. And it's one of the free movies that is uh, being offered these days around racism. And it was, it was a hard movie to watch, it was a good movie. Um, certainly, there are parts that were just painful. It wouldn't be that I would you know, choose to, to, to just look at those parts over and over again. But they're a part of the story. And what made the story ultimately a good story were all the parts. And, and so I, if I were to take out those parts that were difficult and ugly and sinful and even evil and violent, then the story wouldn't have been so good. And the thing is, if you hadn't done the things that you regret now, we wouldn't know how much God loves us. That's right. So John tells us. This is how we know what love is. We wouldn't even know what love was. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That's how we know. Not only how much God loves us, but what real love is. And we wouldn't have known that unless you had done the things that you had done. Some of them were really bad. I've done things that were bad that affected other people. I'm ashamed of those things. But unless I'd done those things, Jesus wouldn't have come and been able to show us what real love is. And now, because we are in Christ and we are, He is in, in us, our story is a part of His story. 
When he became flesh, he adopted the story of history, but also the story of each person that chooses to follow him as his story. You know, all the, all the stories of Peter, James, John, all the apostles who are a part of Jesus' story, right? You read the Gospels, all of that is a part of his story. And our stories, with all of our faults, and Peter's denial, the disciples abandoning Jesus, even Judas betraying Jesus, is all a part of his story. And God happens to love his story. The Father loves his son's story. And our story is a part of that. And part of his ability to love the story is he knows the end. He knows where all this is headed. In fact, he's making sure that the ending is a good ending. And so he loves the whole story. He loves your story. Because your story is a part of you and he loves you. So yes, he knew what he was getting into when he made you his body, his temple. And he loves you, all of who you are. So, I, I, I just think this is great news this morning. I hope you hear it as good news. Who God is, that Jesus is the Christ and he became flesh. And that he loves us. John writes, This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. He knows the whole story. And that's why we can rest in his presence. Let's pray. Abba, Thank you for loving us as we are. And it's because you love us so much that you don't allow us to stay where we are. You, you keep prodding us to grow. And you sent your son into the world to show us what real love is and, and so that all of our stories could be a part of your story. You're amazing. And I pray, Lord, that this, this, the importance of who Jesus was and who he is and, and what he did will, will compel us to make him even more important in our lives. As Paul says, for the love of Christ compels us. We pray for our world. Lord, we're going to trust, and we do trust, that you're somehow overseeing all the stuff that's going on right now. And we're actually feeling some hope about some things. Maybe the first hope we felt in a long time. Would you continue to work in all of that? Yes, even as you allow human beings to make the choices they make. Would you continue to do what only you can do creatively in the midst of all of those choices to bring about your good and perfect will to bring about that new creation? We're so looking forward to it. Amen.